Our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. It's page 975 on a blue pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. We are down now to the final two passages in our Galatians series. And what we are seeing is Paul is ending the letter in a pretty specific way, in that he is ensuring to give practical guidance to this church on uh, what marks a faith community that is filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? And again, this whole letter in a sentence, just as a way of kind of, kind of overview of what has led to this point, is that what he has emphasized in, in painstaking detail in some places is that it is only faith in a Christ-centered gospel that will lead to a Spirit-filled life and a Spirit-filled church. And if you remember, if you were here last week, I asked the question, um, what does a Spirit-filled church look like? What do you think about when I say spirit-filled church? I contend that what the majority of Christians think about in answering that question is shaped more by recent church history than the Bible. And that the phrase spirit-filled is often associated with um, what you might call charismatic or Pentecostal churches when it comes to certain gifts, um, certain signs and, and wonders. Um, like speaking in tongues or miraculous healings and prophetic proclamations. And the reason why, for many of us, that those are kind of the initial images that come to our mind is because of the modern Pentecostal movement. Um, it, it dates back to 1906 uh, in the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles that you might be have heard about or read about. And from that moment, uh, it has been responsible for the fastest growing movement in Christianity, not only in the country, but worldwide. And like any movement across church history, uh, there's a lot of good that has come out of that. There's a lot we should be grateful for, the spread of that movement. And along with it, there are also concerning extremes that could spring out of it and have sprung out of it, uh, such as the prominence of the prosperity gospel and all the problems that are associated with that. But what I would contend, again, is that it's the Pentecostal movement, whether or not we can kind of pinpoint to where it started, that in all of its kind of various streams and displays of the gifts of the Spirit and the emotion involved, that, that we think that's what it means to be a Spirit-filled church. But again, what I would say is that that might be a Spirit-focused way of doing church or a Spirit-focused stream of Christianity, but spirit-focused is not synonymous with spirit-filled. And in this chapter, Paul is sharing markers of a church that is spirit-filled. That's how he kind of bridged chapter 5 to chapter 6, what it means to walk by the Spirit for the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. And biblically speaking, Galatians 6 is the chapter that I think is the most specific on what a spirit-filled church looks like. And so last week and this week, that's kind of been what's been framing our passages in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 10. There are five total markers that are shared. We covered two last week in verses 1 through 5, a spirit of restoration and a spirit of burden bearing. And now we're going to see the next three in verses 6 through 10. And here's the amazing thing about a spirit-filled church, is that at first glance, it's going to seem pretty ordinary. A spirit-filled church, according to the New Testament, is found primarily in the context of healthy relationships as an ordinary means of grace in the local church. 
Healthy relationships is what marks a spirit-filled church. And one cannot claim to be filled with the spirit as an individual and not be connected to or held accountable by a biblical community in the local church. Like, like, like saying I'm filled with the Spirit, but I'm not connected to a church would be like saying, I'm a diehard Yankee fan, but I haven't watched a game all season. Love the Yankees. Awesome. How many games have you watched? Even a part of it? None. Well, like, it just doesn't, there's a, a misalignment there. And I think there should be a misalignment with somebody claiming to be filled with the Spirit, but then not connected and held accountable to a biblical community. And so that's going to kind of lead us into now the back half of uh, verses 1 through 10, where we will see these final markers. And so follow along with me, Galatians 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Paul writes, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, we're going to unpack the final three markers of a spirit-filled church, starting with a spirit of sharing. A spirit of sharing. What makes a church spirit-filled? In part, a spirit of sharing. Verse 6 again, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul is writing that this is the exchange of a healthy church. Pastors and leadership share spiritual resources in a ministry shaped by God's word. So the congregants are nourished and equipped. And the congregants share financial resources in part so that the pastors and leadership are physically nourished and freed up to commit themselves to that word-based ministry. Like, that much is clear. Let the one who is taught share with the one who teaches. But what's implied in there is a two-way responsibility. Because I found myself asking, um, why is Paul saying that now? Like, why is Paul giving this fairly specific exhortation near the end of his letter? Why is he ensuring this letter does not end with him getting this line in? What was happening in the church that caused him to say, I need to say this? Well, remember, we've gone through this letter now since January. What has been the major issue that has caused him to write it in the first place? The major issue in the church in Galatia was that they were being swayed by false teachers to a different gospel. And the way we have described that gospel is a Jesus plus theology. That, that yes, you are to trust in Jesus, but it's trust in Jesus plus some work of the flesh. Trust in Jesus plus something you do to ensure that you are saved. As opposed to the true gospel, as Paul has shared it again and again, what we would call Jesus alone theology or Christ alone theology. That's only by the blood of Christ that we are restored. 
It's only by his work that we are reconciled to God, that we are saved not by our doing, but by our believing in the one who died for our sins and was raised to new life. Jesus alone theology. And perhaps one of the reasons why these false teachers were able to get into the church, gain some ground, get some power, and then begin to falsely teach a wrong gospel is that there was no physical or financial support for the pastors and elders there. And therefore, the church was left vulnerable without the proper oversight that Paul wants in churches. And and the reason why I think about that is because I think about a passage in Acts chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. Uh, But when Paul was departing the city of Ephesus, for the last time, he gathered the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he gave them a final charge before he set sail eventually to Jerusalem, and he would never return again because he would get arrested there. And he says this, and it'll be on the screen in verses 28 to 30 as part of that charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Look at this, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you know why I think he was so specific with that charge to the elders at Ephesus? Because he remembers what happened in Galatia. Galatia being the first letter written in the New Testament. He remembers what happened there. And one of the many benefits of a church, a local church, taking the responsibility themselves to support their own leadership and their own staff is to free them up, not only to teach the word, but to oversee and protect the church from false teaching. And, and there's, a, there, there's a matter of time with that. There's a matter of bandwidth with that. That if a pastor in Galatia had to work full-time to provide for himself and his family in addition to ministry, he would not be as capable, not have the time, not have the bandwidth to care for the flock in the way he should. Further, recall last week when I said that all these spirit-filled markers, they're given right after uh, each other. There's this connective tissue with them. What the, the second marker that we saw at the end of last week what, what was the spirit of burden-bearing, to bear one another's burdens. And now this exchange of sharing is an example of bearing one another's burdens. Pastors and staff and paid leadership bear the spiritual burden of the congregation. That the congregation has a burden to be led in gospel ministry for the purpose of spiritual nourishment in a fallen world. And the congregation bears the financial burden of the leadership to provide for them so they are freed up to do just that. And that is the dual responsibility. So if we kind of narrow this down, let's think about it in terms of Grace Church. Uh, The the, the ministry staff that I have the opportunity to lead here at Grace Church uh, includes 12 people total, 12 men and women on paid staff at Grace Church. And under the oversight of the elders... The task to the staff is to preach the word, 
to ensure every aspect of our ministry and everybody who's a part of that staff that contributes to that ministry from preaching to every operational ministry behind it is to be shaped by the word. So at Grace Church, before anything else you can say about us, I yearn for us to be a spirit-led church first and foremost because we are a biblically rooted church. It's why in Acts chapter 2, when the church began to explode in Jerusalem, uh, Luke emphasized how the disciples were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's why in 1 Timothy 4, or 2 Timothy 4, Paul wrote just before he would die in prison, he would write to Timothy a final time. In the beginning of the final chapter, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Regardless of the cost. The responsibility on us as a staff is to steward the provision given to us by the church. We cannot be lazy with it. We can't be out here at agreed to make money. We must steward the money given to us to work hard, to lead with and teach the word, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to provide nourishment until we all attain the fullness of Christ. And then the responsibility of a church, of a church member, again, under the oversight of the elders, is to provide the staff with financial provision where they are freed up to do that very vital work that they're called to do. Uh, A commentator, uh, Todd Wilson, writes this. He says, quote, it's in the believer's long-term interest to provide financially for ministry at the local church. Think about how you spend your resources in your life. There is generally... Uh, something that you're, you're spending money for your own interest. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We all invest for our own interest. And when it comes to the local church, it's in the believer's long-term interest for them, for generations that come behind them, to provide for the ministry of the local church. Literally investing in you and your family's spiritual lives by giving generously to the church, not to mention the furthering of the kingdom beyond these walls, because at Grace Church, our philosophy amongst our finances is that if we're asking people to be generous to the church, then we want to be generous as a church, meaning that 22% of our budget is allocated to supporting missions partners locally, regionally, and globally. That's over, uh, or it's nearly a quarter million dollars a year, where every dollar that is given, 22 cents of that is going right back out to kingdom building work across the world. And so a spirit-filled church is marked by a spirit of sharing, sharing the word, sharing resources with those who share the word for the church now, for the church of the future. Let's go number two next. The next marker of a spirit-filled church is a spirit of holiness. If your Bible's still open, look at how Paul connects verse 6 to verse 7 how he connects the spirit of sharing with the broader example of sowing and reaping. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that also will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. If you've been around in church for a while, you know that one of the oldest and truest sayings in church, and I think it goes beyond church, is that you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. For those who might be like me, and you were born and raised in the suburbs, and you've never sowed something in your life. (laughs) All right? Think about it like this. 
What you get is based on what you put in. Oh, all right. What you reap, you will reap what you sow. And the immediate context is coming off of what he just shared. That pastors cannot expect to lead a spiritually healthy, growing church unless you preach the word. That's the only way we're going to be a spiritually healthy, maturing church is that if this ministry is based on the word and vice versa, a congregation cannot expect to get strong, faithful leadership from the church without giving generously to the church to support those in leadership. And here, like we saw again with the first two markers last week, Paul continues this pattern of giving an exhortation followed with a warning. He writes, don't be deceived now. God is not mocked. Can I just say, like, that phrase, that alone should make you sit up a little bit. That, that, that should wake us up a little bit. God is not mocked. You can fool others fairly easily. You can hide a lack of spirit-filled investment from others. You could justify it to yourself. But God will not be mocked. He knows. And again, the immediate context is sowing into the ministry of the local church. And if you've been around Grace for a while, you know, you could probably count on one hand, I've talked about money in the church. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very comfortable with it. And I come to a passage like this, and my first uh, response is, dang it. we got to talk about it. But, but we know that I would not be faithful to the text, that we, and I would not be faithful in leading you unless we don't see this, that when it comes to money, we are easily deceived. We are easily justify things to ourselves. We easily justify not being generous. And so when I do talk about money, here's what I try to get across, that generosity is not about the amount given. It's about the amount sacrificed. Generosity is not about the amount given. It's about the amount sacrificed. The biggest, churches, biggest givers in the church, which I don't know who they are. I keep myself from knowing who gives what in the church. The elders oversee that. But the biggest givers are not necessarily the most faithful because they give the most. Because giving is about the amount of sacrifice. So you can do some easy math here. Someone who makes a million dollars a year and gives to the church 50000 5%. A person next to him in the PU can make 50000 a year and just give 5000 5000 versus 50000 In God's economy, the amount sacrificed, the person making 50 and giving 5 is more, giving out of more of sacrificial giving than the one who made a million and gave 50000 Giving to a church that you trust, giving to a church that you're a part of, is not to get God off your back. It's an investment in your own spiritual well-being and the kingdom-building work of others. It's a form of loving your neighbor well. And so while I'm not overly comfortable talking about it, I do pray often and long that we would be a church filled with the Spirit and that we would see and taste the joy of generosity. Do you experience now the joy that comes with generosity? Taste and see. So that's the immediate concept of this sowing and reaping. But sowing and reaping extends far beyond just talking about money in the church. 
Sowing and reaping is a posture of how you approach your entire life in your pursuit of holiness. That's why this point is called a spirit of holiness. Holiness means becoming more like Christ. Holiness means becoming more like Christ. And to walk by the Spirit in this world, we are to understand God's holy economy of sowing and reaping. Here's what Paul essentially says. I'll paraphrase. He says, church, Galatians, pick your field to sow your seed. Pick your field. Every day, you will choose to sow in the Spirit or you will sow in the flesh. Pick your field. The seed you sow will lead to the crop you harvest. You cannot sow in the flesh and expect to reap in the spirit. You cannot live your life solely to satisfy yourself and then expect to be secure and blessed by God both now and in the future. So as Pastor Joe mentioned in his, pray, in his prayer, which I appreciate, uh, today after the 11 a.m. service, our minivan is packed our topper is on. I think we'll have all the children in by the end. And we will begin our annual Midwestern migration to visit Rochelle's family in Wisconsin. And I don't know yet, we'll probably have to take a loan out halfway just to pay for gas to get there. All right? But like, Lord willing, on Tuesday afternoon, we will arrive at Rochelle's parents' house after driving and spending a day with friends along the way. And Dodge County, Wisconsin is predominantly farmland. And the major crops in that county are corn, soybean, and wheat. And once you get out there, it's as farmland as far as the eye can see. And when we arrive in late June each year, the corn stalks are about shin high. And, and, and here's how uh, people out there talk about whether or not the crops are on schedule. All right, here's a saying for you. I'm giving it to you for free. All right, knee high by 4th of July. All right, that's just for you. If you're ever out in the Midwest, just drop that in conversation. All right, and they'll, they'll, they'll know. They'll know. You just, you'll fit in. All right, knee high by 4th of July. If those corn stalks are there, they're on schedule. And by midsummer, by late July, those stalks are as tall as me. And they grow and they grow and they grow until late summer and early fall when harvest season begins in Dodge County, Wisconsin. And what they all know out there. It's simple logic that what you harvest in September is based upon what got planted in April. No good farmer can expect to sow corn seed in the spring and then be surprised when they don't get soybeans in the fall. Why? Because you reap what you sow. In the same way, holiness is a harvest. And you cannot reap a harvest of holiness without sowing the seed of the Spirit in your life. The seeds are the thoughts, the words, the actions of your daily life. Again, ordinary living. And holiness doesn't just come out of nowhere in a single day. It's a process. It's often slower than we want. You might see benchmarks along the way. We often don't see the fruit as fast as we'd like to, but we keep planting the seeds and sowing the seeds of the Spirit in our lives every day. Sowing in the Spirit when you're at work and you realize with a small task at work, maybe some, something as simple as filling out an expense report, you can do something that will benefit you financially, either in the short run or the long run. 
But doing so would require you to lie or cheat just a little bit. And you know, no one will find out. It's just you who would know this. Sowing in the flesh would say, giving in to that desire to benefit financially just by lying and cheating just a little bit. Not a big deal. Sowing in the spirit is refusing that temptation. Sowing in the flesh is doing whatever it takes to make the most money, even if you have to cross some lines. Sowing in the spirit is when a husband and wife choose to confess sin to one another. Not just acknowledge it, but confess it. Look them in the eye. And then to extend forgiveness to one another. Sowing in the flesh is never addressing struggles in your marriage. Allowing resentment and bitterness to grow unchecked. Get to a point where you think this is always the way it's been. It's always the way it's going to be. Sowing in the spirit is rejoicing with those who rejoice. And mourning with those who mourn. Because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sowing in the flesh is secretly mourning when others rejoice. And secretly rejoicing when others mourn. Because there's something about them, you don't like them. Something about their personality that rubs you the wrong way. Or you don't see eye to eye on some issues in the world or the church. We could give examples on and on. You could apply this to your own life. But for all of us, holiness, it's a harvest. So choose your field to sow your seed. A spirit-filled church is filled with spiritual farmers who seek to glorify God in all they do. Which is why Paul writes to the church in Corinth, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the fourth marker. Now we see the fifth and the last, the third for today. A spirit of goodness. What's a spirit-filled church look like? A spirit of goodness. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me tell you why I love this. Paul closes out this section of sharing what a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. And what's the grand, climactic, final marker before his final greetings Maybe the most generic of them all. Do good. And don't give up. And at first, you might be like, really, Paul? This is the end of the letter, man. Like, you could have had a stronger finish than that. And yet, Paul himself knows how hard it is to do good. And how easy it is to give up. The more you seek to actually do this thing, you know what I mean? To actually live out this Christian life, the more you actually try to do it, not just kind of say what you need to say and get by, but the more you're actually trying to invest your life in the Spirit to live the life God has called you to live, the more you seek that out, the more you commit to the church because you believe it is the church that will be the primary means in which God furthers his kingdom and makes disciples to the ends of the earth, the more you know in your spirit, this is exactly what you need to hear. Don't grow weary in doing good. 
Paul has referred to the church in this endearing term throughout the letter, my, my little children. Can you picture Paul like a grandfather looking at a grandchild in the face, getting real close and saying, hang in there. I know it's hard. This is hard. But hang in there. This is the kind of self-denial that is required of sowing in the Spirit. Uh, of staying connected in your faith family. Man, it is tiring work. And in those moments when the weariness seems too much to bear, the hill too high to climb, the road too treacherous to walk, Paul says, don't give up. And don't walk alone. Uh, my, my brother, Dave, he, he's a gym owner um, over in Midland Park, and he'll often tell his classes um, that it's not at the beginning of a workout that you'll get stronger. Everyone here wants to get stronger. He says, it's not the beginning of a workout you're going to get stronger, but it's going to be towards the end. It's going to be in the back half of the workout when your muscles are already tired, when your lungs are already gassed, that by pushing through, you increase their strength and you increase their capacity. And I know from working out at times uh, during the week that I work out alone versus I'm able to get in and work in a class, I'm far more prone to quit early when I'm alone than when I'm with others. In the same way, I think growing and maturing as a believer, growing and maturing as a church happens most not when things are easy, but when things start to get hard. It's when the trial comes. When you grow weary, your muscles are taxed, your lungs are gassed, but you choose to keep going because you see there's others along there with you to encourage you along the way. Perhaps this final marker of a spirit-filled church is the most powerful of them all, where its members are known for doing good. Members who are quick to confess when they don't, receive forgiveness and restoration, and then keep going on the path. For, as he had said in verse 8, the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You see the jump he made there? The kind of reaping we're after might come in this world, and you know what? It might not. But it'll be there. And we will reap eternal life but if we sow in the wrong field, if we live our lives looking primarily for fulfillment, joy, and meaning now, we won't get there. For those here this morning, maybe those who are watching online, maybe you've been sowing in the wrong field for a long time. The field where you're looking solely for pleasure for fulfillment, personal joy, finding your own meaning in the things of this world. If you're sowing in the wrong field, not only do we miss out on the gift of God's love towards us, we also, in that process, sin against God, and we will reap what we sow. Eternal separation from him. So friend, if your life has been characterized by living purely for yourself and your pleasure, you, you need forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with God. And the whole beauty of this letter as it comes to a close is that that is exactly what is found in faith in Jesus Christ.
that the moment you realize I've been sowing in the wrong field is the same moment the Lord takes you and puts you in the right field. And when we do sow in the Spirit, especially within the household of faith to one another, we trust that in due season we will reap. You know, when Paul became aware of some real inner rivalries in the church at Corinth, the church was just divided, they were fractured, there's a lot of tension. He wrote them to say, guys, I planted, there's the language again, I planted, Apollos, he watered, but God gave the growth. I have to hand it to the KGV translation on that one. It says, but God gave the increase. Church, let us be faithful in centering the spirit in this church. Because when we do... We don't need to be consumed with how things turn out. We can trust that God will give the increase. So as we close, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled church to you? Let us be primarily informed by Scripture and see that it is defined primarily by how we treat one another in this faith family. A spirit of restoration, of burden-bearing, of sharing, of holiness and goodness. And we trust that this will glorify God. This will build up one another in the faith. And this will empower the missional aspect of a spirit-filled church that reaches the world for the name of Christ. Because to reach the world, the world is first going to notice how we treat one another in the church. So let them come. Let them see that the Spirit is alive and well at Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how clear and, again, practical your word can be. That surely there are aspects of this word that can be hard to understand, hard to grasp. But there are also passages like this that are very evident practical goodness that you've called your people to walk in as they walk in your spirit. And so, Father, we are not a perfect church, but I pray that we will increasingly be a spirit-filled church, building one another up in the faith, being the kind of salt and light that you've called your faith communities to be in this world. And we trust, Lord, that you will give the increase. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.